Are you a defense financial manager looking to invest in your career? Attend PDI, the Professional Development Institute in Phoenix, Arizona, May 29th to 31st. PDI is the premier annual training event for the DFM community with over 100 educational sessions, 300 speakers, and the ability to earn up to 150 continuing professional education credits. This three-day event enhances the knowledge and skills of defense financial managers in the DOD, U.S. Coast Guard, and public and private sectors. Register today at PDI2024.org. Early bird rates end April 30th. This program is made possible by the members and donors to the show. For details, visit the membership tab at bestoftheleft.com. Now, welcome to the award-winning Best of the Left podcast. We'll come today from The David Pakman Show, The Progressive, The Majority Report, The Colbert Report, The Young Turks, Blacking It Up, The Jimmy Dore Show, Jim Hightower, and Real Time with Bill Maher, with a bonus video clip for our Apple iOS and Android app users from The David Pakman Show. An Indiana bill would outlaw singing the national anthem inappropriately. This is legislation introduced to the Indiana Senate. The bill was proposed by State Senator Vanetta Becker. We don't even have to say whether she's a Republican or a Democrat. There's just We don't have to because everybody knows which party Vanetta Becker belongs to. I won't insult the audience or you, Lewis, most important. Thank you. By even telling you which party she's a member of. This would make it a crime to stray from the approved lyrical or melodic guidelines when performing the national anthem, and you would be fined $25 if you fail to abide by that. Of course, uh, the legislation would require the signing of a contract agreeing, agreeing to follow the guidelines established by the State Department of Education. Now, hold on a second. I thought conservatives wanted less government, and I thought a lot of them wanted to get rid of departments of education. Instead, they're creating more government and giving more responsibility to the state of to the Department of Education of the state of Indiana. How does this make any sense? How is how does this make if you're a small government conservative, how does creating this requirement, these guidelines, the signing of a contract being required and requiring schools to have recordings of every national anthem performance for two years? That's less government. This is a, this is one of those cases where more government makes sense. What is happening here, Lewis? Well, this is like one of those little like blue laws, right? One of those oddball laws that uh, isn't really enforced. I think this one will be enforced. You think so? Yeah. This isn't some law that's grandfathered in. This is the active creation of more government from supposed small government conservatives. If this is the going to be the focus for the next two years, we're in trouble. January 17th was a great day for Wisconsin and a great day for labor rights and democracy across the country. It was the day that organizers of the drive to recall Governor Scott Walker delivered more than one million signatures, almost twice the number needed.
It was per capita, the biggest recall ever in the history of the United States. And it was a grassroots effort through and through with 30,000 people volunteering or circulating petitions over the last 60 days. 30,000 people. Scott Walker brought this on himself, his sneak attack on labor unions and his all-out assault on the public good in Wisconsin on behalf of his corporate paymasters didn't succeed. Instead, it awoke a latent solidarity and class consciousness, the likes of which I've never seen in this country. Not for nothing that people joke that Scott Walker should get the award for Union Organizer of the Year. Now he's in a world of hurt. He got only about a million, 129,000 votes last time around, and almost that exact number has already signed the petitions for his ouster. It seems likely that Wisconsin voters will soon put his bags on the curb. And when that day comes, democracy, real grassroots democracy, will have prevailed. I'm Matt Rothschild, and that's how I see it. I do believe, I do believe, we shall overcome someday, we shall overcome someday, we shall live in This is super encouraging, folks. In Wisconsin, on January 17th, opponents of Governor Scott Walker, which turns out to be a tremendous amount of people in Wisconsin. In fact, the vast majority of the electorate in Wisconsin. In fact, it may not even make sense to say opponents of uh, Governor Scott Walker. It may just make sense to say Wisconsinites. They needed to get 540,000 signatures for there to be uh, a valid and legal recall of Governor Scott Walker. They turned in one million signatures. One million signatures to recall Scott Walker. Do you know how many people voted for him in 2010? One point one million. Scott Walker's got a heap a lot of trouble. And <laughs> he called it on Milwaukee radio uh, yesterday a baseless recall. There are a lot of dumb Wisconsinites, according to Scott Walker. They don't understand what they're doing. Maybe he thinks they just signed on, do you like cheese? Democrats and union members also collected about 850,000 signatures to recall Republican Lieutenant Governor Rebecca 
Cleefish. 20,600 names to recall Senator Scott Fitzgerald, who I believe is the speaker of this, uh, the leader of the Senate, which is about uh, 4,200 more than necessary. Also targeted are Senators Pam Galloway, Terry Moulton, and Von Wangard. The Accountability Board says it needs about 60 days to verify that the signatures are valid. They only need to verify uh, about 540,000 of them, like I said, out of a million. So, Scott Walker, congratulations. You may be uh, one of these rare governors who gets recalled. I think this is only the third, would be the third recall to take place of a governor in the, uh, in the country. Wisconsin only has 5.7 million people. I don't know how many people voted, but Scott Walker's in trouble. Frankly, Mr. Shankly, I'm a sickening wreck. I've got the 21st century breathing down my neck. I must move fast. You understand me. I want to go down in celluloid history. Thank you so much. Ladies and gentlemen, everybody knows I'm an animal lover. Beef, pork, poultry, even fish. That's what I, I am incensed every time PETA speaks for the animals. They can speak for themselves. And evidently all they care about is cereal and insurance. And now, folks, PETA is speaking for the whales. Talk about controversy. Do killer whales have rights under the U.S. Constitution? PETA, the people for the ethical treatment of animals, planning to file a lawsuit today saying that animal performers like these orcas are essentially slaves. Really? How many slaves got to hang out all day at a water park? PETA is resting their case on the claim that the 13th Amendment, while prohibiting slavery in involuntary servitude, does not specify that only humans can be victims. It's what legal scholars refer to as the air bud defense. Because evidently, there is nothing in the rule book that says that whales can't be a slave. Ooh, slave bud. Disney, call me. PETA's lawsuit is frivolous, folks. And CNN turned to Colbert Report legal analyst Jeffrey Tubin for some insight into whether the court will apply the 13th Amendment in this case. If there is one court or one judge in the United States who thinks it applies to anything other than people, I would be very surprised. I mean, it is implicit that it only applies to people. Exactly. And whales aren't people. No court will say otherwise. However, corporations like SeaWorld are people. Supreme Court says so. And, as people, we have to treat corporations with care and respect, and not cage them with ethical treatment of animals. We must let SeaWorld live the way God intended a marine amusement park complex to live. In its natural state, where it is free to put a hat on a dolphin, train a walrus to play didgeridoo, or teach sea lions to dance to Thriller. 
a fitting tribute, considering that by the end, I believe Michael Jackson had flippers. <laughs> Folks, I know it's, it's sad. I'm just as sad. I'm just as sad as you are. The best hope for Wisconsinites who want to see Scott Walker evicted from the governor's mansion is the scandal swirling around him right now. Last week, two more aides from his time as Milwaukee County exec were indicted, including Deputy Chief of Staff Kelly Reinfleisch, who had an office less than 25 feet from Walker's. According to the criminal complaint, she sent an electronic message acknowledging that she was spending half her time on campaign work, which would be against the law. The complaint also reveals that Walker's office had set up a private wireless network for communicating with each other on their personal laptops at work, likely as a way to get around the public records laws and to hide campaign work. After one of Walker's aides was forced to resign because she too had acknowledged doing campaign work on the public's dime, Walker, according to the complaint, said there should be no laptops, no websites in the office. This suggests that Walker himself knew about the secret communication system, which could get him in hot legal water. And if he ordered or approved that secret communication system, he'd be up to his neck in it. Walker denies any wrongdoing, but if one of his indicted aides fingers him, he just may not be able to survive politically. I'm Matt Rothschild, and that's how I see it. Do I believe in this, or is this the only way to get around in my life? I hope you enjoyed this show, but also consider it a valuable tool for not only aggregating, but more importantly, amplifying our view of progressive politics in the world. So if that's true, I ask you to support this work by becoming a member of the show at whatever level you're able, as anything from a basic leftist up through the ranks of socialist, communist, Satanist, or even the most reviled level of support, George Soros. I produce 11 episodes a month of fearless coverage on all the hot-button issues we face, maintaining a rock-solid schedule. So if that sounds worth supporting, please consider signing up to donate as little as $5 a month or even $55 a year. Members also gain access to bonus audio and video content that doesn't make it into the show itself. So for a concrete way to support a strong, progressive voice, please visit the membership tab at bestoftheleft.com. Did you hide it all away to make a thing die? Ryan's previous is the head of the RNC, and they asked him about voter fraud because they're pushing all these bills, the Republicans are, to make sure that we fight the scourge of voter fraud. Except there are almost no cases of voter fraud throughout the country. Uh, he's going to be asked about that. Let's watch. Last night, fraud. Republicans in the House voted to dismantle the Election Assistance Commission, the sole purpose of which is to make sure states meet voting standards that prevent fraud. Why, why would Republicans do that if they're honestly concerned but about voting fraud? Let me get this fraud? straight. So you've got a problem, Martin, 
with someone walking in the polls and having no, I, to show I'm not, I'm not, I'm some form of identification no, in I'm order talking to about, vote? I mean, sorry, sir, I'm ridiculous. talking about seeking to dismantle the Election Assistance Commission. Why would you do that? Well, listen, I, I don't know getting to the oh, specifics no, there, there an Martin, answer but that, let me tell there? you something. I think I come from a state in Wisconsin that is absolutely, was absolutely riddled with voter fraud, okay? And, and they had the smokes for votes uh, exchange in Milwaukee. Uh, this is something that has nothing to do with constitutional rights of the people who are committing the fraud. It has to do with the constitutional rights of people under, under our Constitution that one person gets one vote, not two or three or four or five, by not having reasonable voting standards in this country to make sure that fraud doesn't occur. All right, so first of all, Martin Bashir asked him a great question. He's like, if you care about voter fraud, why are you dismantling the Election Assistance Commission, which would track that? And the reason is, they don't care about voter fraud. They're like, just save money wherever, and perhaps if there are unfair elections, maybe that's not even such a bad thing. They don't care about that issue. But then he pretends, oh, in Wisconsin, it was riddled with voter fraud. Now you want to know the real numbers? In 2004, uh, Wisconsin had three million votes cast, there were seven cases of voter fraud. And that was all by former convicted felons who thought that they could vote when in reality they couldn't vote. Wow, a scourge, an epidemic. You know what that is? That's point oh 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 two percent of the electorate. That was the voter fraud that had riddled the state of Wisconsin. These guys are liars, okay? They don't care about voter fraud at all. All they want to do is use voter fraud as an excuse so that they can come around and go, oh, you see that? We have to make sure that everybody has an ID, which costs money, which a lot of people don't have. Oh, we look at that, Alan G. Willikers. It turns out a lot of the people who don't have IDs are Democrats. For example, 25% of African Americans in this country do not have an ID. Maybe they live in a big city like New York and they don't have to drive, so they don't have a driver's license. 25% of them. And these guys are like, well, in order to stop 0.0002% of the voter fraud that's going on among the votes cast in a place like Wisconsin, I'm going to make sure that 25% of African Americans in this country cannot vote. Plus, a lot of the young can't vote. Golly gee, they vote for Democrats too, etc. You see what their real intention is. And they don't give a damn about voter fraud. All they care about is how do we disenfranchise more votes so that we can win democracy be damned. if the founding fathers actually if they spirit their spirits actually get rest because they are like talked about like every daggone day on what they believed what we you know what they espouse what they the beliefs they have for this country and the hope and the dreams and things like that so the tea party in tennessee mm-hmm. wants to preserve the good nature and good name of the founding fathers Mm-hmm. And therefore wants to remove from history books any mention 
of anything that would tarnish the image of the founding fathers, including incidents of slavery and genocide. I okay, okay, okay. Eljoy, Eljoy. I just went through a whole thing about how we're about truth and honor. Why would you bring such a ludicrous, su- what such an insane concept to the show as rewriting history and history books? Nobody would be for that. I would. Co- that's like well, next thing you're going to tell me that oh, we shouldn't teach uh, 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 ethnic history or anything. Oh, no, Mexican. No. Yeah, no. Oh, yeah, no, right, they no. don't. They. Yeah. So the material calls for lawmakers to amend state laws governing school curriculums and for textbook selection criteria to say no portrayal of minority experience in the history um, which actually occurred shall obscure the experience or contributions of the founding fathers or the majority of citizens, including those who reach positions of leadership. I tell you right now, mark my words. If that actually happened, if that actually worked, if they were able to pull that off, I'm seceding. And I'm taking Brooklyn with me. So <laughs> just move here and we're done. We're done. We're, we're out. We're out. I'm not. Eldra, so Eldra, there would be a remo- revolution. I'm not to, kidding. To remove all references to slavery or genocide of um, the Native Americans that were here from American history textbooks so as not to besmirk the reputation and standing of the founding so they're telling me that uh, that the reputation of the founding fathers is more important than people's actual history and lives Mm -hmm. by the way this is a problem in america and this is why and i bet you us complaining about this is us pulling the race card right now we're we're race baiting the idea that we're upset with this because we should just be happy that we should want the uh, founding fathers to be portrayed in a kind light guess what i don't give a rat's ass about how the uh, founding fathers are portrayed i just want reality Okay, and the fact is that we know for a rea- a reality-based things don't really help them all that often. Yeah, they came up with an idea about this whole thing about, about freedom and equality and everything, just long as you weren't of color or had a vagina. That's it. In fairness, our president is black, so you have to all give right. something back. And we do have Oprah. You have, we have to Oprah it. and the president. That's a lot. That's a, if we got like a black like a black tech billionaire or something like that, then literally, literally, we might as well just go back to Africa at that point. Like we've gotten everything we're getting here. So you have to give back. You have to give something back to them, the kind folks that allowed us to. There's a um, a quote that I really like from uh, from a, a movie and from a person in history that people would probably be amazed that I know about, Marquis de Sade. But um, he in uh, he did this quote or whatever that the Marquis de Sade said in um, this movie Quills. It says, "Are your convictions so fragile?" that they cannot stand in opposition to mine? Is your God so flimsy, so weak, that he can't stand um, in the same uh, presence of mine? The answer is yes. (laughs) In this situation, the answer is absolutely yes. And that is why people, you know what? You know what? I'm going to say something I don't say often, but you know what? Kudos to the right wing. Um, You know why? They have decided what they want the world to be. And they are doing nothing but putting money into making that happen. They are creating their own news networks. They are creating their own news online organizations. They are doing everything that they need to do to completely disconnect from the rest of us and live happy-go-lucky lives and still affect the rest of us, but disconnect from us. And we can't do it because we have a lot of issues because we like to be reasonable and we like to have some sort of facts and and, and, and have, like, like, let's have both sides... 
you know, they don't care about any of this. They're they're willing to rewrite things. They will rewrite your history and delete you. They will delete your struggle. They don't give a rat's ass. F your struggle. F it. F it. Your history, F it. (laughs) Are you ethnic? Yes. F you. And the thing is that, like, more and more people need to do this because soon, 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 they're going to totally delete a lot of stuff. Like, they're going to totally delete that part where Italians were Negroes. Remember that? Where they used to call Italians just flat-out niggers? Yeah, 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 yeah. Like, they're going to erase that. Soon, Italians were always amazing white folk. <laughs> always. Irish? Yeah, they're going to erase that, too. It's, it's, it, but they, but they, I don't think Irish people will allow that to happen, though. Ah! I think they're, I mean, I think they would, in terms of chron- uh, uh, telling their story, I don't think they would. Give, give, give them 10 to 15 more years of, of, of all this amazing white privilege. They, they'll say, forget. Yeah. Um, well, besides that, you mentioned about uh, uh, schools banning, you know, certain uh, textbooks and things like that. Um, schools in, I can't say this, I can never say the this name, Tuxin. Tucson. I can't say Tucson. it. Tucson. Yeah, I can't. <laughs> Poor grandma. I'm I sorry. can't say a word. It's, 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 I you gotta can't. run it past as you're sitting there for half an hour before you start <laughs> um, Because they have banned books, including things like um, Rethinking Columbus, which I actually. Um, they banned have, Rethinking Columbus? Yes, because it, they banned books by Chicano and Native American authors. Oh, of by course. A four to one vote. Of course. By the way, by the way. Please also note, this is the first step. Mm-hmm. They start to do these things. They start to put these le- this legislation in. They start to ban certain things. And guess what? Sooner or later, you, get, you know what happens? They start to go, you know what? Great. We're teaching the youth this, but they're still getting it other places, you know? Like, apparently, they can download. They can download stuff yeah. that talks about this stuff. All right. You know what? Let's let's ban that. Let's just block that. Like, do, do, can we get part of SOPA through? Great. <laughs> let's po- let's ban this here because this is just doing nothing so, but uh, so. creating uh, uh, issues in, in, in the state. And we don't need that. And you slowly but surely, slowly, next thing you know, you'll be listening to contraband. This right here will be contraband. I, it's the first. <laughs> they're, they're pulling. It's 2012. I'm having a freak out because it's 2012. It's not even like it's it's 1940 and they, they and they have all the power, but they still do have a lot of the power, and they're willing to do this in front of our faces. It's like the Red Scare. In front of our faces. They were taking books out of students' hands. Yeah. <laughs> they literally went and took the books out of students' hands. Some of the students said it was like Nazi Germany, and they were unable to sleep when, um, you know, after it happened. They went, they said the banned books were seized from their classrooms and physically out of their hands. Do you, do you understand how? You're taking my books, but I can have this video game. This is how deep it is. Like they are, and we're not making it up. It's not like we're over over exaggerating. Like Elon, maybe you should calm down. They're taking books with history out of their hands. We don't like your history. We're changing it. That's what they're doing. They're changing classes. They're changing history. I, what? I can't. I can't. And, Elon is broken. And soon, and soon, they're trying to put a crazy, a crazy old dude in office who would also, after they take away all of our history, then they'll have your children cleaning because they don't have good work ethics because you know how the ethics are. It's 2012! <laughs> it's 2012! This is why, why we fight, why we 
the mission of this show is to aggregate and amplify the best voices of the truly liberal media, and now you can play a critical role in helping fulfill that mission. I pick out the best clips I hear to share with you, and now you can do just the same thing extremely easily. Now available at bestoftheleft.com, each clip I play is made available individually with simple buttons that allow you to share your favorites on your networks through Facebook, Twitter, by email, and beyond. By myself, I can amplify this content to thousands of people, but collectively, we have the potential to reach millions. No kidding. Become your own media activist by taking one minute to share your favorite content a couple of days each week, help more people plug into the truly liberal media, and be an integral part of this extremely virtuous cycle. Thanks so much for your help. Scott Walker's been spending a whole lot of time outside of Wisconsin, and not on state business for that matter. When grassroots activists handed in one million signatures last month to recall Walker, he wasn't in Wisconsin, he was in New York City trying to shake down former AIG executives for campaign contributions. This week, on Wednesday, he was in Naples, Florida, at the Ritz-Carlton Golf Resort for a luncheon hosted by a conservative think tank. There, he said, if he prevails in his recall election, we will send a powerful message to state house and state capitals all across this country. I'm afraid he's right about that. It'd be open season on public sector workers. Already, Indiana has followed suit, and Arizona and Utah are coming up right behind. Just about every single Republican governor across the country would go after the right to organize. Walker also told the folks at the golf resort that collective bargaining isn't a right, it's an expensive entitlement. But he couldn't be more wrong about that one. It's a right enshrined in the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, which the U.S. is a signatory to. Walker's peddling the same reactionary message to CPAC in Washington, D.C. Fortunately, protesters awaited him there, just as they did in Florida and anywhere else he goes, including every single hamlet in Wisconsin. Because if you take people's rights away, they fight back. I'm Matt Rothschild, and that's how I see it. So here is the new governor of Ohio, John Kasich. John Kasich. Former Fox News. Former Fox News. news guy. Uh, Future Fox News. And Talking current head. Fox News guy. Right. Think of and the first uh, of the big three governors to really destroy unions. Really go after the unions heavy. Right, went right after working people because we can't afford to pay uh, people decent amount of money. And that's the problem. And John Kasich, you know how he got so smart? Here he lets us know how he got so smart. Should know. I don't read newspapers in the state of Ohio. Nope. <laughs> nope. Doesn't. Wow. Really? What was the question exactly? That's what I want to know. What was the question where he answered? I don't read newspapers. It, it, the question was, uh, did you finish this week's crossword puzzle? <laughs> I think the question was, why are you so bad at your job? <laughs> no, I think it was, did you see this week's Ziggy? <laughs> it's like, why, why do you seem completely tone deaf, uh, Governor Kasich, and and uh, and 
kind of ignorant of reality. Oh, you don't read any papers? Okay. All right, so here, there's more. Uh, very rarely do I read a newspaper because just like I think for, the presidents have done in the past, reading newspapers. Oh, yeah. Presidents, they're, they're, it's true. Mm-hmm. There have been several presidents who have chosen not to read the newspapers. Uh, several truly shitty presidents <laughs> have chosen not to read. I think Grant was not a big reader. No. So he's showing you that he's presidential. Yeah. <laughs> That's it. This is the, his attempt. To- yes, here we go. Okay, there's more. Just like I think for, that presidents have done in the past, reading newspapers does not give you an uplifting experience. No, it does not give you. Because it's all that, all that news is like so oh. depressing. Hey, but you know what? I say, Governor, try the jumble. <laughs> try the jumble. It's crazy uplifting. And, I, you know, I'd never thought that's, about it that way either. I mean, I thought a newspaper was there to report useful information that someone like me or, say, the governor of a state might find useful, if not crucial. No, it's a, it's a bummer. No, the newspaper's it's, there. It's, it's, it's there to uplift you, like a sermon or a Kate Hudson movie. <laughs> that's what the and newspaper. And it's also very in stark contrast to Sarah Palin, who who reads every newspaper, every magazine, and every book that comes <laughs> that, out that, that they put in front of her. Yeah, even Sarah Palin was embarrassed to say she never read any newspapers. <laughs> right? Even she made something yeah. up. Yeah. So, John, so you know, the the old motto was reading is fundamental. Uh, John Kasich, reading is peripheral, really. <laughs> and I don't know if I pronounced that word correctly. Mm. Nope. <laughs> peripheral again peripheral 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 okay I well, said just it. when you say peripheral just say it on the outskirts of this show okay i will i'll say it on the parameters yes uh, parameter of the perimeter no all he needs is uh all uh, the governor of ohio needs is fox news mm-hmm. and the weather channel mm-hmm. because as governor you should know if it's raining uh, okay <laughs> that's all he needs he's got he's got just a little bit more to say here we go Time to time, people will send me articles and things I need to know about. From time to time, people will send him from- recipes and yeah. stuff like that. <laughs> like what? Like what do you do every day? Like, a, I, I, don't you have like daily meetings with advisors, or, or are they also forbidden from delivering any crucial information that might not uplift you, Governor? Are most of your staff meetings about gossip and planning office birthday parties? <laughs> what the hell? If it's not uplifting. Okay, I think he has a little bit more to say. Let's see. Uh, but I have found that my life's a lot better if I don't get aggravated by what I read in the newspaper. <laughs> so he doesn't want point. to get, doesn't want, do you understand what this guy just said? He's one of the most powerful governors in the United States. Mm. Said he receives his news in the same manner and frequency with which he gets links to puppy videos on YouTube. <laughs> That's the same reason uh, he doesn't study unemployment numbers. <laughs> drag. Yeah. Huge don't, drag. Don't want to hear about maybe I'd, you know maybe if you read a newspaper you'd find a, uh, maybe you'd read a poll that said that the majority of Ohioans are against your legislative agenda and are going to ruin you when coming to the next election. Maybe well, you're you trying know. to bum him out. He's the governor <laughs> of the state but he's not like into like political things and topical <laughs> Stuff and stuff that's going on in the world—it it doesn't really interest him. That's what makes him fascinating. Mm-hmm. And it, by the way, rising star in the Republican rising star doesn't read. I my life's a lot better if I don't get aggravated. But I what I read in the newspaper, you know. And I'm sure the people of Ohio are grateful that your life is a lot better too, Governor Kasich. I'm sure they're sitting around going, you know, I'm out of work. The schools are screwed. I can't afford health care. And organized labor just took its worst body blow in a thousand years. But the governor sure seems relaxed and easygoing. He doesn't want to be rattled or upset. Come on. Yeah. 
you got to admit, though, he does make being a Republican very tempting. I mean, where else can you proclaim things that should be shameful and then get rewarded for them? Right? You know, he might have just talked his way onto the VP ticket. <laughs> <laughs> this is this presidential material, clearly. I mean, he just proclaimed that he doesn't read the news and his base is probably cheering him. Right. Our last president thought the world is 6000 years old and he got elected twice. Don't you wish you could do that? Don't you wish you could just be, hey, I'm a chronic masturbator. And I'm afraid a monster might live in my closet. Hey, here's a major position of power for you. Why don't you go run a state or something? I just wanted to mention, you know, maybe it's not a bad idea for the Republican politicians to not read because one guy did read, U.S. Representative John Fleming, Republican. Uh, what he did, he's getting some headlines because, well, he's from Louisiana, mm -hmm. and so, you know, he's bright. And on Monday, he his public Facebook profile published a link to an article from the from the Onion <laughs> that was titled "Planned Parenthood Opens Eight Billion Dollar Abortion Plex." <laughs> <laughs> so, and he he posted the and the, up the status more on Planned Parenthood abortion by the wholesale. Fleming said on his Facebook profile where he linked to the Onion's article. <laughs> so maybe they shouldn't read, maybe because they can't tell the difference between satire and they can't tell the difference between real news. So it will just confuse his, them. What's this guy's name? Fleming. Fleming. His his campaign slogan was Fleming. I don't get it. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, we're closed. In one of the saddest signs of the times, this message is popping up all across the country as governors and legislators are cutting off funds and shutting off access to one of the finest, most popular assets owned by the people of our country, state parks. More than 6,600 of these jewels draw some 700 million visitors a year to their grand vistas, historic sites, wildlife, campgrounds, educational centers, and lodges. Parks are literally a tangible expression of America's democratic ideals, common ground for every man, woman, and child to enjoy and experience. For the middle class and the poor, who can't jet off to luxury resorts for a getaway or vacation, these spaces offer a form of real wealth, something that each of us literally owns, knitting us together as a community and a nation. Yet, too many spiritually shriveled, small-minded, and short-sighted state officials are snuffing out this uniting social force, stupidly treating parks as nothing but a budget number, or worse, a piece of the nanny state to be axed in the name of ideological purity. Top politicos in most states are closing many of their parks, slashing hours and services at others, or simply handing over the public's asset to profiteering corporations. Idaho's governor has proposed eliminating the entire parks department. California shut the gates of a fourth of the state's parks last year. Officials in Arizona and Florida intend to privatize their parks. Washington state has cut off most of its park funding. And Ohio has okayed oil drilling in its parks to replace state financing. This is Jim Hightower saying, as Woody Guthrie said of outlaws, some will rob you with a six-gun, some with a fountain pen.
Shutting parks is theft by the in-laws, the political insiders who are stealing the people's property, stealing from America itself. The GOP candidates must save us all a lot of time by just telling us which parts of America they don't hate. You know, so many Republicans nowadays speak with unbridled disgust for America's East Coast elites and San Francisco liberals and the Hollywood cesspool and the inside the Beltway mentality and Chicago-style politics. And then they accuse Obama of dividing America. They, they say, how can we be one nation under God if Democrats keep talking about the two Americas and the haves and have-nots and the 99% versus the 1%? But there are two Americas. We are a nation of haves and have-nots. And when it comes to dividing America, it's Republicans who in recent years have carved out a nation into two distinct territories. There's the heartland. And then there's the rest of the country, a vast, nightmarish wasteland of college professors, museums, and people who recycle. <laughs> I mean, just, 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 just think of the list of these parts of America that republics are publicly bitching about. Chicago, that lawless hellhole where Obama learned how to thug. Hawaii, the state liberals made up so Obama could become president. <laughs> Hollywood and San Francisco and, oh, fuck it, let's just say all of California. <laughs> except for Orange County and the shitty parts of the valley. <laughs> I mean, j just mention Massachusetts with a big eye roll and it's an automatic applause break at the CPAC convention. Taxachusetts. Yeah. You mean the state that's number one in education, number one in health coverage, and is basically where our country started? Yeah, screw them. <laughs> Honestly, if Sarah Palin were president and terrorists struck New York again, she would say two things. First, is Mount Rushmore okay? And two, well, at least they didn't hit the real America. <laughs> Democrats don't do this. Jerry Brown doesn't stand under the Hollywood sign and say, no, I don't know if this will play in Texas or down on the farms where they have no values and fuck chickens. <laughs> but you here in Hollywood are the real Americans. It never happens. Pretty soon, the only parts of America acceptable to the right will be Boise, Idaho, Branson, Missouri, and a nursing home in Florida with the six remaining Cubans who still give a shit about Castro. <laughs> and yet, somehow, they keep finding more parts of America to hate. Last week, Newt Gingrich blasted New York elites who, quote, live in high-rises and ride the subway. 
I shit you not, Newt Gingrich called the subway elitist. Because that's the ultimate in hoity-toity travel. If you're, if you're able to smell pee while a vagrant presses his dick against your thigh, I mean... Subway riders, they think they're so great, packed ass to crotch in a shrieking, creaking, lurching, airless underground tube. Why don't they travel like real Americans on a spaceship to the moon? Now... <laughs> and, mind you, Newt made these comments while in Las Vegas. In Las Vegas, he said elitists live in high-rises. Unlike real Americans who live in pyramids, pirate ships, <laughs> castles, and the canals of Venice. Yes, Newt and his fellow Republicans are deep patriots who can't stop loving America, except for the American people. They don't really care for those freaks at all. And especially not elitists. And anyone who's ever learned a foreign language, visited a foreign nation, or read a book that wasn't about a five-year-old going to heaven is an elitist. Because you know where people read, don't you? The subway. They're just thorns without the rose. Be careful of being in the dark. Oh, if I was the one You chose to be your only one Oh, baby, can't you hear me? This week, we're celebrating the one-year anniversary of the Great Wisconsin Uprising. It's been the single biggest sustained campaign for the rights of public sector workers in the history of the United States. We've seen historic crowds, historic recalls of state senators, and historic numbers of signatures to recall Governor Scott Walker. But now I'm hearing more and more unease from progressives about who's running against him and who's not. At the moment, there are two candidates, former Dane County Executive Kathleen Falk and State Senator Kathleen Weinhout. Falk would make an excellent governor. She's smart, hardworking, progressive, and principled. Unfortunately, she's not the greatest candidate in the world, and Walker would have a very good chance of beating her unless he's indicted. Weinhout is an up-and-comer. An inspiring and empathetic speaker, she was one of the Fab 14 who left the state to postpone action on Walker's reactionary agenda. But she's new statewide and might also have a tough time. And so I'm increasingly hearing people wish for Russ Feingold or Herb Cole to enter the race. Neither one wants to. And both have been in public service so long, they've certainly earned the right to step aside and enjoy being a private citizen, if that's their choice. I don't envy the tough spot they're in right now. I'm Matt Rothschild, and that's how I see it. As an anti-consumerism advocate, I'd like to encourage you to shop less, don't buy things you don't need, and only buy the necessities from local, independently owned businesses. That said, if you don't take this good advice, then at least there's a way to shop that helps support this show at the same time. Simply click through to Amazon.com, just one of the major companies under constant boycott by one liberal cause or another, from the banner posted at bestoftheleft.com. 
Better yet, click through just once and bookmark that link to use every time you shop. Your shopping experience will be identical to normal. It will cost you nothing extra, but 7 to 8% of the cost of your order in soulless corporate blood money will be siphoned off and used to tremendously support the production of this show. Thanks for doing the right thing, whatever you consider that to be. There's a really fascinating piece uh, in the New Yorker by uh, Ryan Lizza, and because they got to look at these Obama memos that had never been before seen, and we see the notes that the president made in them, and these are memos from you know serious people, from Larry Summers, from Tim Geithner, from uh, uh, from top advisors, Rahm Emanuel, and then the president's reaction to them. It's a 25. It's a it's a serious piece. 25 pages in the New Yorker. I'm going to synthesize some of it for you because it. It really suggests uh, much of what progressives think about Obama is true and has been true from the start. And these memos, to me, suggest a guy, a president, who from the very first time he was uh, elected to the Senate, and really prior to that when he was in the Illinois Senate, was a guy who thought, here's what leaders do. Leaders work with the other side at all costs, and he believed that he could get this done. And the ignorance of Obama, the mistakes made in his presidency, which I think are undeniable, come from a lengthy, lengthy, endless failure to recognize what was happening around him. A complete failure to recognize that the Republicans who he was reaching out to never had any interest in helping him. So, um, uh, so early on, the, the, the piece begins fascinatingly. He's about to be sworn in. It's a cold January in 2009 as he waits for his January 20th inauguration. And he goes to George Will's house. Washington Post columnist George Will, the conservative columnist, and he's going to meet with a bunch of right-leaning journalists, people who, of course, would not uh, support him. George Will's there, Michael Barone, David Brooks from the New York Times, Charles Krauthammer from Fox, William Crystal, Lawrence Kudlow, Rich Lowry, Peggy Noonan, very influential Reaganites, very serious uh, right-wingers. And it's a charming little dinner, and, and some of them leave believing that this guy might be able to be a little different and bridge this gap. I don't know what these guys... Uh, we're thinking earlier, what we're thinking in any way. Now, keep in mind, this is a guy, Barack Obama, who burst onto the national scene when he made his uh, speech at the Democratic National Convention in 2004. Um, and when he ran for the Senate, uh, he criticized and says, here's the pundits and prognosticators who like to divide this country into red states and blue states. That was the nature of his speech, where there at the convention in Boston, he said, there is not a liberal America, said Obama, and a conservative America, there, there is a United States of America. And then he goes on to become a big star. Now, in 2006, he writes his book, The Audacity of Hope. And there's so many great lines in this book that make you recognize exactly uh, who Barack Obama was and from where, he came, where his thinking comes from. Uh, here's how he, de he describes politics as a system seized by two extremes. Depending on your tastes, our condition is the natural result of radical conservatism or perverse liberalism, Tom DeLay or Nancy Pelosi, big oil or greedy trial lawyers, religious zealots or gay activists, Fox News or the New York Times. So I think when you read that, you see a guy who comes at this right off the bat with a grotesque misunderstanding of, of, of the disparate political elements of this country. Just look at the, put that quote up there one more time, just so you can see the things that he splits. Tom DeLay or Nancy Pelosi. Tom DeLay and Nancy Pelosi were not ideological opposites. 
Nancy Pelosi, uh, in a, in, if Nancy Pelosi had been in Congress in 1968, you maybe would describe her as very partisan. Uh, in, in this era, she wasn't, she's not nearly as partisan as Tom DeLay, and merely because they're known names, you don't equate them. And the fact that a guy like Barack Obama equates them gives instant credence to the argument that they are equal. And then when you talk about the big power of big oil or greedy trial lawyers, again, using a line, this whole thing is out of a Frank Luntz playbook of false equivalents. Big oil or trial lawyers, that one, by the way, the closest. Religious zealots or gay activists. Well, I mean, gay activists, people fighting for, and first of all, I wouldn't use the term religious zealots either because it minimizes people of great faith, but religious zealots are gay activists. Gay activists aren't extremists. I mean, that's again, that's like saying civil rights activists were extremists. Gay activists are not extremists. They're gay activists. And then the worst one of all, Fox News or the New York Times. One of them is interested in giving you information to get you through the day, telling you what's going on in the world, and one of them is a political organization designed to advance the cause of the right wing. Again, the suggestion to me, that's the kind of thing that you would expect to read from that organization in Washington the third way, where they're, oh, everything's, uh, we're all gonna get along, we're gonna be great. These things aren't the same, and a significant miscalculation by Obama, this is 2006, it's a miscalculation that he would seriously continue to make up until today. Although I think some encouraging signs in the last few weeks. This piece in The New Yorker goes on in the back and forth between Clinton and Gingrich. He's talking about in the 90s when Bill Clinton was president. And in the elections, he says, of 2000-2004, I sometimes felt as if I were watching the psychodrama of the baby boom generation, a tale rooted in old grudges and revenge plots hatched on a handful of college campuses long ago, played out on the national stage. Again, I think he is missing what was actually happening which was a right wing unwilling to move at all, becoming intractable in his position, and then a left wing trying to reach out. The country moving far right, and Barack Obama, I think, completely missing it. Again, in The Audacity of Hope, he writes about, a longingly, he says he writes about the politics of the mid-20th century when both parties had liberal wings and conservative wings. Um, there's a book, uh, a, a political scientist, not a book, excuse me, the uh, a political scientist Keith Poole and Howard Rosenthal, they have uh, devised a strategy, uh, the New Yorker reports, a widely used system to measure the ideology of members of Congress. They write, when Obama took office, there was no ideological overlap between the two parties. Um, uh, at all, and this was in 2009, no ideological overlap, so what he yearns for was gone, which makes yearning for it rather pointless. In the House, the most conservative Democrat, Bobby Bright of Alabama, farther to the left, and the most liberal Republican, Joseph Cow of Louisiana. Uh, and then the conservative Democrat, Ben Nelson of Nebraska, much further to the left than the most liberal Republican, Olympia Snow. According to Poole and Rosenthal's data, and again, widely accepted data, both the House and Senate more, po more polarized today than at any time since the 1890s in the 1890s. Now, it also goes on here, polarization also affected the two parties differently. And here's the key, that it's not just polarization, it's a particular kind of polarization. And if you fail to acknowledge that particular brand of polarization, you're missing the whole point. The Republican Party has drifted much farther to the right than the Democratic Party. Jacob Hacker, we have a graphic for this. He's a professor at Yale. He wrote a book in 2006 called Off Center. He documented this trend, and he points out that since 1975, Senate Republicans moved roughly twice as far to the right as Senate Democrats moved to the left. And then, even more so, House Republicans moved roughly six times as far to the right as House Democrats moved to the left. Six times. If you ignore that and merely say we're polarized, 
you're not in any way going to effectively deal with that kind of polarization. So what does Obama sort of do with all this information? Uh, I think what he does is make a number of significant and serious miscalculations. There was a fight that developed very early on as with the recession, the magnitude of the recession set in for the incoming president, the incoming chairman of his Council of Economic Advisors, Christina Romer, uh, against sort of Peter Orsag, the incoming budget director. He wanted fiscal restraint. She wanted a bigger stimulus package. And the president kept thinking, what I'll do is I'll work this out with Congress. But a Congress that instantly, instantly began to label him as far left, having no interest in working together. Stimulus reads here, first test of Obama's theory that politics is played in the center of the field and the GOP's ability to define him as a liberal. Late January 2005, the bill had cleared the House without a single Republican vote, without a single vote. A, a bill that he had significantly watered down. Jim DeMitt in the Senate in South Carolina called it the worst piece of economic legislation Congress has considered in a hundred years. Not since the creation of the income tax, says DeMitt, has the United States seriously entertained a policy so comprehensively hostile to economic freedom or so arrogantly indifferent to economic realities. And he'd loaded this bill with tax cuts so that he could lure Republicans in. He brings in the tax cuts. Jim DeMint reacts this way. DeMint says about the tax cuts, think of it this way, he says DeMint. If nearly every Democrat in Congress supports a tax cut, it's not really a tax cut. Again, Obama thinking, I'll be able to work this out. Even as the severity of the economic crisis became clear, they work on the Recovery Act, which ended up being $787 billion. Three votes in the Senate. That got one of those votes came from Arlen Specter, who later became a Democrat. And it reads here, it was the first recognition that congressional Republicans had little interest in the president's offer to meet them halfway. It turned out, it says here, that the ideological divide he had set out to bridge was not just a psychodrama. That's right. Um, and again, and then it starts to happen with health care as well. Initially, you see an administration that the memos show, they ask him uh, about the option of doing it through reconciliation and not a vote. Reconciliation, as we all know, would have allowed a public option to pass. 60 votes, you couldn't get the public option through. The White House could still fashion a bipartisan bill, a memo sent to Obama says, but it was important to have the 51-vote option as a backup plan, the reconciliation backup plan. Um, so they would say, uh, uh, below this language, he was offered three options, agree, disagree, or let's discuss. And he goes with agree. And then we know, of course, because he thought, no, I have to move out, I have to bring everybody together. Uh, we won't have the reconciliation. We'll just go for the 60 votes. And the only thing he could get passed, as we've learned, of course, was something uh, uh, that did not have the key element in health care legislation. Uh, uh, and that would be the public option. So, you know, I, I, it's a fascinating piece. Um, uh, I'll read one more thing here. Uh, as moderation, it says here, never swayed Republicans, nor did his attention to interest groups. Or, uh, or, or willingness to cut beloved social programs. Through the rest of 2009, as the anti-government Tea Party movement gathers strength, it says, as the Tea Party's gathering strength, conservative voters began to speak of a creeping American socialism. Socialism. Barack Obama. Socialist. Obama's age quarrels are how the president should respond. Romer, Christina Romer, again, head of the Council of Economic Advisors, she wanted him to press for his Keynesian case for his policies to defend the proposition of increased government spending, that that will work, that that was the responsible way for government to spend the money. Orsag continues to fight for Washington's deficit hawks, again, thinking that will appeal to the Republicans, but they don't even care about that. It doesn't matter that Orsag won the argument. Republicans weren't playing either way. Orsag urged him to create a deficit commission, partly because it could provide 
fiscal credibility during a period which is unlikely we would succeed in enacting legislation. One final quote, since we have our our last graphic on this, from uh, uh, Thomas Mann and and Norman Ornstein. These, again, well-respected guys, not guys uh, from the Brookings Institute, uh, and Norman Ornstein, of course, a conservative. Uh, These guys write this. And again, conservative. One of our two major parties, the Republicans, has become an insurgent outlier, ideologically extreme, it reads, contemptuous of the inherited social and economic policy regime, scornful of compromise, unpersuaded by conventional understanding of facts, evidence, and science, dismissive of the legitimacy of its political opposition. Uh, And these are the guys he's trying to work with. But of course, the bottom line is the Republicans won't play anyway. They never play anyway. This is Chris from Monterey, California. I just wanted to present uh, my point on uh, just what's wrong with America. And it's so simple, and so many people realize it, but yet we can't do a single thing about it. We need to get money out of politics. And my solution to this problem is create, you know, having all elections on every level, federal, state, and city elections be publicly funded they'd be funded by the government and the government would set up some trust fund on every level the federal government would have its presidential and congressional trust fund and then state legislature trust fund state governor trust fund and then on the city as well and that way if people want to donate to elections they're donating to everyone so that everyone has a fair shot just the simple fact that we have all these lobbyists and a whole industry of getting money into politics, getting laws written that benefit your business and your business only. You know, this is going to cost a lot of money to fund. And I guess the main point is that I would be willing to pay higher taxes if I had any faith in this government and had any faith whatsoever that we had a a system that worked and that was fair and that really elected the people that best represent the people voting for them and that's the problem i would pay higher taxes if i really thought that my representative was looking out for my best interest thanks jay hi jay it's tim from quincy illinois i would like to see your angle and your take on the false equivalencies being uh sown in the media uh, i know sank on the on the Young Turks does a good job of pointing out, but I think it, you have such a unique way of being able to pull from many different sources and, and show how these false equivalencies between left and right are actually damaging society today. And what brought this on is I was just having an argument with a person who was trying to say something like, oh, we need to be aware of extremism on both sides, left and the right. And I was trying to formulate an argument and say, where are the threats today from left-wing extremism as opposed to the threats today from right-wing extremism? So uh, I thought that would make a good show. Love the work you're doing. Thanks for everything you do. Hi, Jay. This is Lynn calling from St. Paul, Minnesota. I'm calling in response to a voicemail that was left for the As We Do Unto Others episode, the foreign policy one. He's talking a lot about grass-fed beef, and I just wanted to 
respond. Uh, Grass disease does not necessarily mean that the cow itself is more ethically treated, just referring to what it eats. And remember that corn is also derivative of grass that is, in fact, more nutritious for for a ruminant digestive system like bovines have. I haven't heard about the methane thing you referenced, which I'm eager to learn about. But just one thing to keep in mind is that the amount of grass that is grown requires a lot of land to feed those cows, and that is more inefficient, which is something that also needs to be considered. And he kind of referred to grass-fed or feedlots as a binary choice. Remember that it's a continuum and that not all conventional farmers are these terrible people who use their animals. 97% of farms are family-owned, and to be involved in that type of agriculture, you really need to care for your animals because you're with them day in and day out. And my final point is that I agree antibiotics are overused in animal agriculture, but he said that his farmer would let a cow die before he gave it antibiotics. How is that more ethical? It just blew my mind that someone said that. Anyway, thanks for the show. I love everything you're doing for the podcast and love the show. All right, bye. Thanks for listening, everyone. Thanks to all those who called into the voicemail line. If you'd like to leave a comment, question, or activist call to action yourself to be played on the show, the number to dial is 206-202-3410. So uh, I I mentioned in the last show that I'm doing a 300-mile ride for charity. Climate change-based nonprofit organizations will be the beneficiaries of that. And uh, so links to donate to that uh, are in the show notes and embedded right in the show. You know, you can probably even link to it within the device you're listening to it on that you can uh, maybe click through and, uh, and and that would be enormously helpful. A couple of donations have already come in and I will be thanking all of you uh, on the air as we go forward. My goal is $2,400 and uh, as things stand right now, I am 3% of the way to my goal. So uh, thanks to those who have already donated and it is certainly a good cause for those of you considering donating. Today, I want to play something for you guys. February 14th was the Young Turks 10-year anniversary, and they were uh, very gracious to uh, invite me to come and be a part of that. Uh, they asked me to send in a, a video to be used during the show. So I just want to share with you guys that whole segment, and here it is. So let's take a look at another video. This one's a little longer because it has a clip, an audio clip of, uh, of the show. It's Jay Tomlinson, member number six. Hey there, TYT Nation. My name is Jay Tomlinson. I'm also known around the internet as the producer of the Best of the Left podcast, and I'm honored that the Young Turks have asked me to come and be a part of their 10th anniversary show. I've been supporting them since the summer of 2005, and I just learned that that makes me member number six here at Rebel Headquarters. And so I just want to share one of many favorite moments uh, from over the past several years, and uh, I chose this one because it was actually featured on the very first episode of Best of the Left uh, I ever made back in 2006. You have a man crush on, on Bruce Springsteen. I have a man crush on the whole band. If Bruce Springsteen was to come in here right now yeah. and he said, Ben Magnus, I'm willing to hug you really, really hard, like in a way that's almost uncomfortable and awkwardly, like possibly slightly homoerotic. Would you squeal like a little girl? No, would you do Not squeal, but would you do it? Uh, I mean, uh, we're just hugging uncomfortably? Yeah. Uh, uh, in a heartbeat. <laughs> of course. <laughs> would you grab his, his penis? Well, then we've... Then, no, then, then, that's, 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 that's a ridiculous that's question. A ridiculous that's question. what a female groupie would do. Uh, no, but would no. you let him uh, brush up against you, if you know what I mean? Yeah. No. 
No. Okay, that's right. No, but I mean, but it's like either you hug really tight and he brushes up. Do I get anything out of it? I want to have a conversation with him. That's what I want. All right, he's going to have a five minute conversation, 12 minute conversation with you. Okay, that's that's significant conversation. But he's going to hug you so tight that you feel him on you. For the total conversation? No, 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 no. For like 45 seconds before the conversation. And he squeezes your buttock. No, he's not going to touch you. Why? No, no, no. Because that's out of bounds. It's an obvious no. So I don't understand. I feel him on. What are you talking about? You feel him on you. You know what I'm saying? No, I don't. And then I'm done. I want to no. But a little bit. Like you can't quite tell. Is that him? Is that not him? You know, maybe he's just happy to see me. Maybe it's a cell phone in his pocket. No, I'm not interested in any of that. <laughs> no, then no, no, and I'm not. It's not like I would recoil from that. Ooh, that's gross. I, I, that's fine. I don't care. That would not bother me at all. I just now all of a sudden, really that wouldn't bother you at all. I don't care. I'm over to hug. I, I mean, he's, he's he's dressed right. Yeah, but I mean, like, what if you and Jesus hugged and he's on you? You know, I, first, I, I, I would I get over it in, in, a, in an eighth of a second. Really, that would uh, that take me eight years to recover from that? No, yeah, I mean, Jr. But I'm a bad guy. I'm you no, know. no, I don't care about any of that. I just I don't want to get to the point. Like, I want to have a conversation with him, but I don't I don't want to pay for the conversation. <laughs> I want him to want to have the conversation. He's a huge fan of classic movies, Springsteen is. So I'm I secretly hope that he knows who I am. You know, and he's on uh, Sirius all the time now. They have a whole channel devoted to Bruce. Yes, they do. I, 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 I can't. I, I don't even change the channel ever. It's, unless, of course, you're listening to Sirius Left. I never change the channel. Oh, oh, man, the God, channel. These guys are terrible with marketing. Anyway, uh, so there's some chance Bruce could be listening right now. Bruce, you don't, you know, right? Yeah. It, just so you now you have sensitive parameters as to how far you can go with Ben. <laughs> yeah, exactly. For that conversation he's dying to have with you. Right. That's it. Exactly. Um, okay. I'm, I'm prepared to take some risks. So I just want to say something to Jenk and the whole crew that I've said multiple times throughout the years is that with each great success you guys have, for everything from launching the video show in the first place, which was revolutionary, to every subsequent success uh, from then on out, right up until uh, finding a real home for yourselves on current, with each of those successes, I take a personal bit of pride in that because they're each a reminder of how much of a winning horse I chose way back in 2005. So as you always do, keep up the great work, go forward, move forward. All right, now Jay, I, I wanna give credit for not just being member number six, which is fantastic, but his Best of the Left podcast, I remember he called me up or emailed me one time before I even knew him and he's like, look, I'm doing this podcast and I take like you and Tom Hartman and some of the other left guys and I do a best of left. You know, some people are, are, are saying, you know, some might object and so do you object because of copyright issues, etc.? I'm like, what are you talking about? Please do it right away. Or as, as my dad would say, right away, right away, yeah, 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 whatever you need. Have at it, Hoss, definitely put us in. And he would feature us all the time. And I can't, uh, we've done a million Young Turks get togethers, right? And I've seen Jay at a whole bunch of them, right? When we're in DC, et cetera. And I'm telling you, man, one of the most common answers we get for how did you find the show is Best of the Left podcast. Really? Yes. Yeah. That's amazing. So we owe Jay a ton, man. Nice. And that's, that's what I'm talking about when we say, like, it's all of us are the Young Turks that we all work together to get here. So yeah. he's a great example of that. So that is how that went. It was very exciting to be invited on in the first place. So thanks to the, uh, to the Young Turks for that. And then, of course, congratulations on 10 years. It's very exciting stuff. Uh, all of this has actually reminded me that I forgot to mention that Best of the Left had its six-year anniversary back on uh, back, back in January. 
but uh, you know, six years, that's not very exciting. So I, I don't feel too bad about uh, missing it, but I want to finish up today's show. Uh, it, it, rather than thanking members as I usually do, I want to thank a couple of donors to my uh, charity climate ride. And so Mary kicked us off uh, very generously with a $50 donation, I think, uh, setting a good precedent there. And Sean followed up uh, very soon after throwing in 20 bucks of his own. And uh, so I think we're off to a very good start on this. I have all the confidence in the world I will be able to reach my $2,400 goal for that. And, and as I've said and will continue to say, the, the beneficiaries are, are very worthy uh, climate change nonprofit organizations that I know and personally trust. And so as I've mentioned, the details on how to donate to, to my ride are uh, in the show notes of this episode and even probably embedded in the device you're listening on. You may even be able to click through, if you're connected to the internet, click through on that link to, uh, to get to my personal donation page. So now, of course, just to uh, support the show, as all of you want to do, I know, besides becoming a member, I simply ask that you tell everyone you know about the show. It makes a huge difference, especially when sharing individual clips that you uh, particularly enjoy through your social networks or by email. Details on that are in the show notes of each episode. To stay tuned into the show between episodes, join up with us on Facebook and Twitter. And for details on the show, including links to all the sources and music used in this and every episode, all of that information is always posted in the show notes on the blog. So coming to you from far outside the conventional wisdom of Washington, D.C., my name is Jay, and this has been the Best of the Left podcast, coming to you every third day, thanks entirely to the members and donors to the show from bestoftheleft.com. Fine, fine, black and white You took apart a picture that wasn't right Pitch burning on a shining sheet The only maker that you want to meet A dying man in a living room Whose shadow bases the floor Who'll take you out